I don't know about you, but I like rabbi stories. One in particular came to my attention this week. An inquirer asked a rabbi, why does a rabbi always answer a question with a question? The rabbi, after a long pause, replied, why shouldn't a rabbi always answer a question with a question? We live in a time when answers are so easy to get. You ask a question of Google and you get several million answers within a split second. But in the years leading up to the time of Jesus, obviously they didn't have Google searches. What they had developing, though, were rabbis and the synagogue system in which often questions were met with more questions. And that continues down to this day. If you've got Jewish friends, ask them about their rabbi's questions. Jesus, of course, was a rabbi, and he was quite adept at this technique. I'd like us today to have a look at one example of that. You can find it in Luke chapter 10. One of the more familiar Jesus stories and also an example of Jesus using questions instead of giving answers. I'll begin reading Luke chapter 10 at verse 25. Verses 25 and 26. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? (laughs) An expert, a teacher of the law, a scribe, This is a person who, as we are well aware, came, as Luke tells us, with a question to test Jesus. He, like the religious, other religious authorities in Israel, were more interested in nailing Jesus down as a heretic, a blasphemer, than they were interested in getting answers. So Jesus avoids the outcome of being trapped in an answer by using this great rabbinical strategy, which would force the expert in the law to answer questions rather than ask the questions. It forces the expert to examine his own conclusions, perhaps, and and perhaps come around eventually to seeing things in a different light. Let's pick up the story in verse 27. He answered, Jesus answered, or excuse me, the the expert in the law answered the question. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The expert might very well have been wearing phylacteries, little boxes that had scripture portions in them. This was their practice to have one tied to their arm and another to their forehead. 
And in those phylacteries would have been the Shema from Deuteronomy, which gave this exact answer. How do you gain eternal life? By loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus congratulates him for the good and very orthodox answer and then closes the test with this affirmation. Do this. Love God. Love neighbor. Do this and you will live. You will have eternal life. Verse 29. But the expert wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Just who exactly is my neighbor? You know, this is an expert who is not going to give up his task easily. He's, he's like the dog that now has his teeth in the bone, and he is not going to give up. He is going to find something to accuse Jesus. So they got by the, the first question okay, but now... He wants to justify himself. So he asks, who is my neighbor? Probably wanting to justify himself because perhaps he knows that he doesn't love God or his neighbor quite as much as he's supposed to. We don't know, of course, but perhaps that's part of the question. So what he might be doing is trying to Take this category of who is my neighbor neighbor, and shrink it down a little bit. Wouldn't you like to do that? God, who is my neighbor? I mean, is it, is it everybody or can I shrink it down to the people that are easy to love? Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe if he can shrink the category down a little bit, he'll be able to continue to cling to this the conceit that He is truly loving God and loving neighbor. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by neighbors. I mean, no. Yeah, Freudian slip. When he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, getting as far away as he could. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him could be translated compassion on him. The form of the Greek Greek word splanknon, which means gut-wrenching. Pity that makes your stomach churn. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Another question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, 
the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Before hearing this parable, I'm pretty sure that the expert in the law would have defined neighbor as Jewish neighbors, not Samaritans. They wouldn't have been in his category of neighbors. If only the priest and the Levite in this story had stopped to help the the injured, presumably Jewish man who had fallen prey to the robbers, all would have been well. They would have been doing what was expected of them, taking care of one of their own. But Jesus didn't give them that option, did he? The fact that the priest and the Levite didn't stop to help the man shows that even the most spiritual of Jews, perhaps even this expert in the law, are at risk of breaking the command of loving their neighbor. We typically think of helping our neighbors something we do to those in need, right? Helping a person is something that you do for a person who can't help themselves or needs a little extra help somehow because of a disadvantage they have. In this case, the injured Jewish man would be the neighbor in question, right? How do I help this guy who's been beat up? He's half dead. Everything's been taken. How might I help him, this neighbor in need? But Jesus asks a different question at the end of this parable, one that twists the definition of neighbor perhaps a little bit. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The neighbor is the one giving the aid in this case, not the one receiving it. The hero of this story is the The hero of this story is the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan. The one who is loving your neighbor is a detestable half-breed. The expert would have given the answer Samaritan through gritted teeth. I don't want to tell him this, but it's the only choice. It's the Samaritan. Jesus' question at the end of the parable, which of the three, forces the expert to think more deeply about himself and maybe to think about that original question, who is my neighbor? Maybe the answer he had in mind wasn't the right answer after all. The way Jesus asks the question forces the expert to recognize the neighborliness of the Samaritan who cares for the Jewish man that's been beat up. I wonder if this made the expert in the law question his own lack of neighborliness. Why wouldn't I help a person like a Samaritan? If he can't include this if you can't include this Samaritan as your neighbor, then you might one day be left for dead along the roadside and have nobody to take care of you. The priests pass by, the Levites pass by, the Samaritan passes by because I don't want him helping me, which leaves us helpless, alone, dead. 
A better question than the one that the expert in the law asked, who is my neighbor, a better question would have been, do I behave as a neighbor to those who need my compassion and help? That's a different question, isn't it? At the end of the first question about eternal life, back at the beginning of this passage, Jesus said, do this and you will live. At the end of the parable, Jesus said, go and do likewise. And they sound an awful lot alike, don't they? Those are two very similar questions. They mean essentially the same thing. And the expert probably received Jesus's do this and you will live gladly, happily. Ooh, patting myself on the back. I got the right answer. Check for you. But when Jesus at the end of the parable says, go and do likewise, I'm sure he had a little bit more difficult time accepting that invitation. That would entail helping or receiving help from people like Samaritans and other unclean people. I would suggest that the intervening parable that Jesus told and the questions that he asked at the end of that forced the expert to admit what would have been an unthinkable answer at the beginning of this conversation. But in reality, the Samaritan is the right answer. Jesus used questions rather than answers, both to keep himself out of trouble, but also to force the expert to enlarge his definition of neighbor. The expert asked the neighbor question in order to reduce the pool of candidates for neighbors. Jesus' parable in the follow-up question had the effect of enlarging the pool of candidates exponentially, didn't it? The expert was hoping that Jesus would give an answer to his question that would prove heretical or blasphemous. But both of them could agree on the answer that they ended up with. It's the greatest commandment. How can you argue with that? What differs in their answers, though, is that Jesus uses the parable to show that loving your enemies, especially those you despise, is what the greatest commandment is all about. Right? Not just loving the people that love us, but loving the people that hate us. What it means to be God's people or Israel is not rule-keeping, but enemy-loving. Right? This expert in the law would have said what it means to be God's people, God's chosen people, is to keep the rules. Jesus opens his eyes to the fact that enemy loving is probably a better definition of what it means to be the people of God. Jesus finds a way, I suggest, to get the expert to admit this to himself at the end of this story. What's the benefit of responding to a question with another question? Ultimately, we each need to find the answer within ourselves. And the only way we can find God's answer within ourselves is to be filled with the spirit of Jesus, the question asker. 
Anyone else's answer to our questions will never be as compelling as the answer that we find ourselves through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Prayer may be more than asking God questions. It might be answering the questions that God asks of us. Before we get to that whole filling of the Holy Spirit thing, though, let's look at one more facet of Luke's telling of this parable. Luke has a way in his gospel of never telling us what happens at the end of some stories. He leaves us hanging, a cliffhanger of sorts. We wonder at the end of this, did the expert really change his mind? Did he come to enlarge his category of what it means to be a neighbor? I suggest that this is how Luke invites us into the story. What did the expert do after this conversation? I don't know. What would I do if I were in that expert's shoes having this conversation with Jesus? Would I have changed my mind? The expert in this case serves as a placeholder for us. Where do I find myself in this story, in this parable, in this conversation? And because of the way Jesus engaged the expert with rabbinic questions, the expert may have actually heard what it means to go and do likewise. Who knows? Perhaps he followed Jesus, became a martyr for saving and helping and having compassion on the wrong people. We don't know. What would I do if I were in his shoes? We need to ask ourselves some questions. This morning, I'd invite you to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Think about your neighborhood. Think about your workplace. Think about people that you have had encounters with out in public this past week. Who is my neighbor? in those places. How does God want to expand my definition of neighbor? And what would that entail? But that wasn't the most important question that this expert in the law asked. The most important in question he asked was, how do I find eternal life? Some questions we might ask ourselves there, since eternal life is love. We might ask, what does it mean to love a neighbor that I really don't like? They are your neighbor. Let me just give you the answer, okay, because that's what you came here for. (laughs) They are your neighbor. There is nobody that is not your neighbor. The more important question is, what does it mean to love the neighbor? that I really don't like, to love the neighbor who abuses me, to love the neighbor who lords it over me, to love the neighbor who has it out for me. What does it mean for me to love that neighbor? What does love require in every situation in which you find yourself? If love is the motivating principle, if that's what it means to have eternal life, is to be filled with the love of God, then what does that require in your time, in your conversations, in your relationships? 
While Jesus is no longer walking the earth, earth asking these hard questions, hallelujah, <clears throat> oh, he sent his Holy Spirit to ask the hard questions. Oh, rats. We're not home free. He sent the Holy Spirit to ask the hard questions, and he sent the Holy Spirit to find the answers within us. I thought of a passage in one of Paul's letters, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a letter or a passage which explains this ministry of the Holy Spirit in asking questions and leading us into answers. You're well aware of the fact that the Corinthian congregation had a fraught relationship with Paul, didn't they? They said all kinds of hateful things about him. They accused him of all kinds of unchristlike things. They dismissed and mistreated him like perhaps no other congregation that he was involved with. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. In response to those who were belittling his ministry and his preaching, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things of God has the things God has prepared for those who love him these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit the spirit searches all things even the deep things of God for who knows a person's thoughts except his own spirit within them in the same way no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God what, are we, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Can I get an amen? <laughs> what we have received is not the spirit of this world that identifies people as friends or foes. We didn't receive a spirit of the world that allows us to say you're in and you're out. No, we have received the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but, the person, but such a person, person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Christ. 
how do you know how to answer the question, who is my neighbor? It's because we have the mind of Christ. How do you know how to love your enemy? Because we have the mind of Christ. How do you know how to love even the worst enemy, the person that has struck you and struck you over and over again? How do you love that person? Because we have the mind of Christ. Prayer is a conversation in which we ask questions. We look to God for answers, don't we? Lord, what do I do here? What do I do there? How do I do this? How do I do that? That's what much of our prayer time is spent. But God is just as likely to ask us questions. Oh, we call it different things. We call it conviction. We call it that uncomfortable, awkward feeling that you have when you've just asked God to do something and you get this impression that God has no intention of doing that. God is asking questions, saying, what should you really be asking for? So while conversations with God often mean us asking questions, oftentimes we ought to invite God to ask a few questions himself. Because it might just have the effect that I suspect it had on that expert in the law, helping him and helping me to change my mind and broaden my category of who the neighbor is and how I should love those who don't love me. We don't know what happened to the expert in the law, but I wouldn't be at all surprised that that conversation full of questions led to a transformation of his mind. And I was reminded at that point of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, which says, you're not my neighbor. I don't owe you anything. I don't have to have compassion on you. You're wrong. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test. We do get to test God. <laughs> Lord, is this how I ought to love? Be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Who would have thought the best way to change a mind is to ask a question? We're going to share communion together. A whole nother sermon was in my mind the, this week as I was reading through this passage. The similarities between the Samaritan who put the half-dead man on his own donkey... I wonder if Jesus pictured himself coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. I wonder if that was a picture in his mind saying this Samaritan is a Messiah figure for this man who is half done, half dead. 
But I also thought that perhaps the man who was half dead might be the Messiah figure. We don't think about how can I help Jesus, but Jesus wasn't half dead, was he? He was 100% dead. How do we help a 100% dead Jesus, a 100% dead Messiah? We get into the tomb with him. The downward way of Jesus is what changes people from unable to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength to being able to love their love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The resurrected, the dead and resurrected Jesus is the one who enables us to love our neighbor as ourself, right? So as we are sharing communion at the end of this service, let's embrace the downward way of Jesus, the downward way that ends in death on a cross, but then is concluded by God's resurrection power. Let's embrace the one who teaches us to love those who don't love us, even though it makes absolutely no earthly sense. Because it might be the only way to change their mind. I'd ask the servers to come forward. We'll serve communion as we have in recent months, having you come forward, stepping out from the right-hand end of your row, coming forward to the person standing at the front of your section. Take the elements and return to your seat, and we'll share them together. The gluten-free tray. Denise, I'll give that to you if you'll stand over here. Tim, you can go over to the far side. Isabel, you're here. Tony, go over to the one of you in front of each section. So as you come forward, keep this question in mind. How do I embrace Jesus who died on a cross? Jesus who loved even those who crucified him. How do I love the one who has only hate? in his mind or her mind. How do I love those people? Jesus, we need the answer to that one. If you've got gluten issues, come forward to Denise, but let's stand and come forward to receive these elements. Thank you.
on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus sat around a table with disciples who weren't always the best neighbors. And yet he was sharing this meal with them, preparing them to become Jesus to those in the rest of the world who needed to find Jesus, needed to know Jesus. With perhaps fear and trepidation, trepidation, he took that piece of bread and broke it, passed it to his disciples saying, this is my broken body. I'm inviting you to be willing to allow your body to be broken as well, but this is my broken body broken for sinful people around the world and throughout all time. Let's take this and eat it together. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant never to be shed again once for all time, setting free everyone who has ever lived, is living, and will ever live, setting them free from sin. If only they would be willing to embrace his death. So let's take this cup and remember the death of Christ. Lord Jesus, I thank you for inviting us into your story. Thank you for making a place for us to stand and be questioned, to stand and give answers. Thank you for giving us opportunities to be challenged and disciplined. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for using all of the stories, all of the teaching, all of the miracles, all of your Holy Spirit's work in and through us. Thank you for using all of that, Father, to expand what it means for us to love you and to expand what it means for us to love our neighbor. Lord, as we wrap up this worship service and we leave from this place. We enter a week with things on our calendar that we know about as well as things that will surprise us. But nothing surprises you, Lord. I pray that today, because we've been here to worship you, we've been here to pray, we've been here to hear your word, we've been here to experience the filling of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would equip us to love the neighbors that we find along the side of the road this week. And in so doing, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In Christ's name.